Hello, everybody. Welcome to A Survivor's Guide to Hell. I'm PJ Aubrey, and each week we're going to pick an unpleasant topic and share stories and information that will hopefully help you laugh, help you find a bright side, or even change your perspective on something. Thank you so much for listening. Today, our unpleasant topic is... Death. When it comes to death, we've tried to dig up a few things you can live with. Death. It's one of the most ambitious topics when it comes to finding silver linings. In a 2019 survey asking people about their fears of death, 69% of respondents reported that yes, they feared it to one degree or another. 11% even admitted to the highest degree of fear on a survey. Very afraid. The stats are clear. How to find peace with death is a popular question. Let's break this down one more time. 69% of survey participants fear death. 11% fear death very much. 100% will experience death. And 0% will be able to tell us what it's like to kick the bucket long term. Here's another number you may find curious. When asked how much they feared death, 25% of respondents reported they didn't fear death. Not at all. If they've assessed themselves correctly, that means a quarter of the respondents have discovered how to find peace with death. Honesty time? <laughs> I do fear death. Sometimes a little, sometimes more. It's not the act of dying that scares me. In fact, I hear it can be quite pleasant in the right conditions. It's the after part of afterlife that gets to me. And I wager that many of you can relate. I don't even mind not existing anymore, except the part where I can never see my family again. No more kissing my kids' foreheads, no more holding my husband's hand, no more mommy-daughter hugs. In a scenario where my soul no longer exists, the loss of my family can't hurt me. There's no me to hurt. Logically, the idea of personal annihilation shouldn't bug me. But emotionally, it totally bugs me. What about that 25% of people that claim they have found peace with death? I'll bet that a large portion of those people are religious and have faith in a peaceful afterlife. I'll also bet that a small number of them are lying, or at least don't know the truth about themselves. The remainder are the ones I envy. The ones who have come to terms with confronting the unknown. These are the ones who likely see death as an adventure to be had, or at the very least the most restful sleep one could ask for. Either way, they don't fear the not knowing part. Today, we're dipping our own toes into the topic by covering three different ways of thinking about death. I won't attempt to tell you what happens when we close our eyes for good, However, I will share the death traditions of unique cultures that you may find uplifting. I'll share the uncanny stories of John Babacombe Lee and Joseph Samuel, who both escaped near certain death three times in the same day. Lastly, we'll sprinkle some scientific stats that may shine a light, if only a little one, on that shadowy valley that so many of us fear. I won't try and guide what you should or shouldn't believe. I won't even tell you what I believe, mostly because I don't know what that is. But somewhere in this podcast on death, perhaps you'll find something you can live with. Ways to think about death. Number one, thinking about death from a different culture's perspective. 
Even if you don't ascribe to their beliefs or traditions, there's still incredible value in learning about other people's way of thinking. At the least, you're a more well-informed member of the human race. At best, you may find something that makes you a better person. Either way, learning about others' customs and lifestyles has something to offer you. That's why we've collected three death traditions from different cultures and toted them overseas just for you. The following death traditions are a grab bag of curiosities. As you listen, you may think anything from, well, that's a bit macabre, to, I wish they did that where I live. Either way, each custom has a fresh perspective on death. The coffin lid is open. It's time to peer inside. Here's our first cultural death tradition. Ghana's tradition of fantasy coffins. You've heard of fantasy novels and fantasy football, but what's a fantasy coffin? In Ghana, you may just find yourself giving your final goodbyes to someone being laid to rest in a giant wooden shoe, or perhaps in a carefully crafted crab. Depending on the person, you may even be shedding a tear or two over an enormous hand-carved chicken coffin. Under that hot Ghana sun, the locals believe that the deceased have even more power than the living. They also believe that the parted continue their vocations even after they've passed. To avoid burying a vengeful relative, it is common for the Ghanaians to fashion an elaborate fantasy coffin for their deceased. Of course, here in the United States, our coffins are a much more formal affair, padded and polished, as if we're traveling to the afterlife in the executive suite. Nothing wrong with that, of course. I just wonder if watching your local chicken farmer laid to rest in a giant bird coffin helps ease the sting of the loss a little bit. According to one of Ghana's visitors and author of Take Photos, Leave Footprints, funerals in Ghana are not the somber, morbid affairs that so many of us are used to. They are a celebration of life and a toast to the departed. This would explain the bright colors and whimsical shapes of the fantasy coffins. Because they can take so long to make, they're typically commissioned before the departed has actually departed. That means people are picking out their own coffins on a much more regular basis with infinite possibilities when it comes to theme and design. So, what would you choose? All right, here's the second tradition, Ikwa Ozu, the second burials of Nigeria's Igbo tribe. I have to apologize. I'm probably butchering a lot of these words, so if you know the correct pronunciation, please bear with me. But here we go. In Nigeria's Igbo tribe, death isn't the end of life. Like many others, these folks believe that physical death is merely a transition into a new world. Unlike many others, the Igbo believe that the spirits of the departed are forbidden to take their place among their ancestors until a ceremony called the Ikwa Ozu is performed on their behalf. According to Matador Network, on these typically lavish occasions, which last anywhere from a few days to several weeks, the family of the deceased spends a small fortune on alcohol, livestock, and entertainment. Sometimes a mock trial is carried out to establish who, if anyone, was responsible for the death. In a rite known as Inu Uno, Inu, <laughs> oh my goodness, Inu Unu Aqua, a person known as an Ada eats the deceased's favorite meals in complete silence from dawn to dusk to provide the deceased with food in the afterlife. These ceremonies are so expensive that the family often waits for several months after the original burial to hold them, sometimes combining the occasion with a grand memorial service. 
Because the Ikwa Ozu ceremony can take months after burial to afford and arrange, it's often referred to as the second burial. And like the Ghanaians and their fantasy coffins, it is much more lively than the funerals you may be used to. Personally, I love the idea of someone else silently eating my favorite food all day. It would be my parting gift to the souls I left behind. I know I'm not there to give out hugs and offer a listening ear anymore, but I want you to treat yourself to something real nice, like some sushi rolls, maybe a little Ben and & Jerry's, and pretty much anything from Panda Express. Don't talk, just eat. I love you. Our third and final cultural death tradition is Madagascar's Faramihana, dancing with the deceased. What if there was an afterlife, but you couldn't go until even your bones had fully decomposed? In Madagascar, that's the theory. There's life after death, all right, but you don't get to experience it until even your bones have turned to dust. That's why every five to seven years, the Malagasy host a festival known as Famadihana. During this time, the bodies of the departed are exhumed from family crypts and rejoined with the living to party it up. They're given fresh burial shrouds, and their loved ones will dance with them, drink with them, and even just chat with them. Not many people have such an opportunity to interact with their dead like it's the good old days. The Famadihana ceremonies may sound strange to us Western folks, but I find it touching. The Malagasy care so deeply for their loved ones that they don't even want them to get too bored post-mortem. They remember their ancestry intimately enough to show them a good time here and there. Before the night is over, the bodies are re-interned into their crypts until the next festival. The future of Famadihana does not look as secure as it once had. Some have abandoned the ritual, believing it goes against certain religions, which it probably does, and media outlets have even spread claims that it spreads the plague. For now, at least, Famadihana remains a sacred tradition among the Malagasy. Okay, let's pause for a second. Did you catch that quiet little rumbling noise in the background? That was our microphone picking up paranormal activity. Okay, totally kidding. We tried a new recording technique and there are still some bugs to work out, so bear with us. Okay, back to the show. All right, that's it for our cultural death traditions. Here's the second way you might think about death differently. Thinking about death as elusive. Not many people think of death as something you can actually outrun, but maybe you can, temporarily, anyway. Many of us fear death as something that can reach out from under the bed and grab us at any moment. Maybe a tragic accident or an undetected health problem could show up tomorrow and do you in. Sudden death. The following two stories invite this kind of death into the lives of two young men who lived nearly 100 years apart. However, just when death had them trapped in a corner, or in these cases, at the end of a noose, life persevered in the most unlikely ways. Like some of the world's best stories, these accounts are true. Enter Joseph Samuel. Joseph Samuel was only 15 years old when he was sent to Australia for criminal misbehavior. This was in 1795, back when Australia was still home to Britain's penal colonies. In other words, the outback, where Britain shipped a lot of its undesirables. Joseph's crimes were many, but fairly petty. The charge that finally abolished him to the penal colonies was a robbery, 
something that would likely end in juvenile detention in today's courts. But Joseph Samuel was not one to be confined. The Australian prisons of the time were not super fortresses, but for good reason. They were so far from civilization, most men who dared an escape met their end under the merciless Australian sun, or possibly in the mouth of some of the deadliest creatures on earth. Not Joseph. He survived his desert journey only to be involved in a domestic robbery where a policeman was killed. According to a 1953 newspaper recounting the incident, his head had been shockingly battered and the hilt of his cutlass was buried in his brains. Joseph and his cohorts were rounded up and a frail trial with weak evidence ensued. A modern-day investigator would gop at the proceedings. One defendant claimed their blood-splattered clothes was due to a recent pig slaughter. Another would explain the presence of blood in his room as part of an incurable nosebleed. Eventually, with shamefully weak evidence, every suspect was acquitted but Joseph Samuel. Samuel persistently testified of his own innocence through the investigation, all the way until his dying speech at the gallows. He stood with another criminal, who was given a last-minute reprieve right there at the hangman's noose. All the while, Samuel continued to assert his innocence, insisting that another man in the crowd, Simmons, was the true murderer. The local Gazette reported, Odium and suspicion were attached to Simmons from the very first. Although, from the want of that full and sufficient evidence which the law requires, he escaped condemnation, yet he had been arraigned at the arbitrary tribunal of public opinion, and most of the spectators pronounced judgment against him in their hearts. It is not to be wondered, then, that a testimony proceeding from the lips of a dying man should at once remove all doubt, if such remained. Samuel, now standing alone on the gallow, devoted the last awful minute to the most earnest and fervent prayer. At length, the signal was given, and the cart drove from under him. Joseph Samuel fell. The concussion of a snapping rope must have sent his heart into recoil. According to the papers, he fell motionless to the ground, face down, with a broken rope around his neck, and lungs that were still breathing. Another rope was brought in. Samuel, with a freshly broken ankle, was dropped once more. This time, the faulty rope unraveled so that his legs trailed along the ground. At this point, onlookers began to declare that the hand of God sought to save Samuel. Records describe that the convicted appeared lifeless as they raised him back for the third attempt to hang. Perhaps he'd been debilitated by the terror of not dropping once, but twice, with yet another hanging ahead of him. Despite the protests of the crowd, the boy was tethered with a fresh rope, and the cart was pulled from under him, again. The rope snapped. The boy survived. Finally, reprieve was granted. The paper writes, The wretched, half-strangled Samuel was still only semi-conscious, his reasonable faculties totally impaired by what he had endured. Under medical treatment, he later recovered. There have been plenty of foibles at the gallows, where a mild malfunction forces some poor soul to await their morbid fate twice. However, never has another man survived three consecutive attempts at hanging. Except John Babacombe Lee. John Lee was also from the UK, and had a criminal history prior to his death sentence. He was also convicted of murder! this time of an employer who was found with a beaten body and a slit throat. Like Joseph Samuel, he was convicted on circumstantial evidence. The murder victim, a woman with several servants who was transitioning between houses, 
had recently informed John Lee he'd receive a pay cut. Her body was discovered soon after, charred by a flame that was presumably set to burn the evidence. It wouldn't be long afterwards that Lee was found with a suspicious cut on his arm. John Lee fiercely pleaded his innocence. Still, nearly a century after Joseph Samuel climbed his own gallow, John Lee was forced up the scaffold and had a rope placed around his neck. Barry, the executioner, pulled the lever. The trapdoor didn't budge. Barry examined the mechanism without Lee on top, and it seemed to work fine, but when a second attempt was made with Lee back in position, it failed once again. Some cuts were made in the wood to allow the trapdoor more leeway, and one of the warders stood on the door to test it. It dropped as it should, so Lee was returned to his place, and the lever was pulled once more. Nothing. After this attempt, the attending medical officer refused to participate further. The prison chaplain, who had read John Lee's service four times since the execution proceedings began, would write, More than 30 minutes had elapsed since I first began the service at the condemned cell. Then, when I saw the helpless confusion that prevailed, the great mental suffering through which the culprit had passed, and the improbability of the scaffold working, I joined with the medical officer in an appeal to the undersheriff to postpone the execution for that day. Great cruelty would have characterized further effort to carry out the sentence that day. Lee was returned to his cell. When Home Secretary Sir William Harcourt learned of the situation, he said, It would shock the feeling of anyone if a man had twice to pay the pangs of imminent death. Eventually, the source of the trapdoor's miraculous malfunction was determined, but by then, John's sentence had already been commuted to a life sentence rather than an execution. He wasn't imprisoned long, all things considered. Lee was released at the age of 42 and became something of a celebrity as the man they could not hang. After his fame faded, he left his pregnant wife destitute and sailed to Wisconsin with another woman. He died there in 1945, having maintained his innocence to the very last. Isn't it kind of strange? After all that hullabaloo of avoiding the gallows and becoming near-death celebrities... Where are John Lee and Joseph Samuels now? <laughs> well, <laughs> they're dead. All right, a different way to think about death. Number three, looking at the afterlife from a scientific perspective. After exploring the colorful death traditions of the world and visiting the stories of two men who cheated death six times between them, I hope that shadowy figure of the afterlife seems a little less monochromatic. But in case you're not satisfied, my favorite part is coming up. That hopeful slice of science that says, yes. Well, more like maybe. Maybe something comes after this life and we can actually measure it. The data I'm about to share was drawn straight from an article published in the Journal of the Missouri State Medical Association, which is an award-winning peer-reviewed publication. The article itself is called Near-Death Experiences, Evidence for Their Reality, by Jeffrey Long. Despite criticism against the article, it offers some compelling arguments for the first phases of life after death. Long says, Near-Death Experiences, NDEs for short, are reported by about 17% of those who nearly die. NDEs have been reported by children, adults, scientists, physicians, priests, ministers, among the religious and atheists, and from countries throughout the world. 
While no two NDEs are the same, there are characteristic features that are commonly observed in NDEs. These characteristics include a perception of seeing and hearing apart from the physical body, passing into or through a tunnel, encountering a mystical light, intense and generally positive emotions, a review of part or all of their prior life experiences, encountering deceased loved ones, and a choice to return to their earthly life. After this introduction, the article discusses several different lines of evidence for near-death experiences. The dead are still lucid after their brain is incapable of sensation or hallucination. In many cases, NDEs occur after a person is unconscious, comatose, or even clinically dead. Each of these conditions places limitations on the brain that should prohibit the kinds of experiences that survivors often report. Considering NDEs from both a medical perspective and logically, Dr. Long says, it should not be possible for unconscious people to often report highly lucid experiences that are clear and logically structured. Dr. Long goes on to describe how the majority of folks with NDEs claim they were more alert and aware during their experience than they are in their day-to-day -day life, even when electroencephalograms measured no significant brain activity. Even those with brain impairments in life reported incredible abilities in death. Notable among them are the born blind, who sometimes reported that they were finally able to see things they'd only heard of before and had no previous visual concept for, like leaves and bird feathers. This article was the most interesting scientific publication I'd ever read. If you enjoyed these excerpts, I highly recommend perusing the original article. However, I should mention that the topic of near-death experiences is a very divided one. There are plenty who ascribe to the belief that this phenomenon indicates a life after death. Others insist that these events can be explained by the brain's behavior at death, nothing more. In fact, as I read Dr. Long's article, I saw another publication in my browser's sidebar entitled, There is nothing paranormal about near-death experiences. How neuroscience can explain seeing bright lights, meeting the dead, or being convinced you are one of them. The arguments of these neuroscientists are very persuasive, and I recommend doing your own research with both sides if you're committed to finding your own beliefs about death. As I mentioned before, I'm not trying to convert anyone into any way of thinking when it comes to dying. It would be hard, after all, when I still don't know what I think about death. Here's what I do know. Death will happen. In fact, it should happen. When my path is tread and my deeds are done, I need to make room for someone else. The theory that death is the end, an eternal blackness without consciousness, is a reasonable one. But it's not the only reasonable one. We've covered a mini multitude of other beliefs surrounding death, and granted, some are far less plausible than others, but they all respect one of physics' best known laws. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed. So maybe we've been asking the wrong questions. Maybe it's not, is there life after death? Maybe it's something more fundamental. What kind of energy are you? And where in this endless universe will that energy travel next? Well folks, our time is up. Yes, pun intended. Now we invite you to join us for our weekly Silver Liners Challenge, which is designed to be an easy, actionable step you can take to help boost your week and help you survive hell. Here it is, the Silver Liners Challenge. Do you fear death, even a little bit? You're in good company, my friend. I don't think one little old podcast will cure that for you. But here's my challenge. Decide on one thing about death, however small, 
that you find hopeful. Feel free to share your answers and experiences in the comments of our website, www.survivorsguidetohell.com, or on our Facebook page. This is a podcast version of our sister production, A Survivor's Guide to Hell, the blog. This podcast gives you a way to access our content when you're driving, cleaning house, or dancing with your great, 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 great uncle. But if you'd like to see the videos and pictures that often accompany our posts, like my favorite fantasy coffins, check out our website at www.survivorsguidetohell.com, where you'll also find much more information, including our storytelling code of ethics and information on how to submit your own work. We'd like to thank Zapsplat and the Free Music Archive for today's audio. Listen, we're on a budget. You know the drill. Something about visiting the support page of our website, yada yada yada. Today I just want to thank you for listening. Subscribing to our podcast and staying tuned is the best thing you can do to support A Survivor's Guide to Hell, and it's the best way we can support you. No kidding. Last but not least, our cheesy joke of the week. A man tries to sell a coffin to a customer. The customer says, the coffin is the last thing I need. You get it? All right, everybody, have an excellent Monday.